do 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 Making your way in the world today takes everything you got. This comes to us from Jordan Maywood. Next up, we have Jordan. He's going to tell a joke. We got an answer for Jordan Maywood. Yes, Wood May. Hello, this is Penn Gillette. The possibility exists that if I were to actually listen to the Liberal Cube podcast featuring host Jordan Maywood, I could potentially enjoy it. Eh, I'll ring an endorsement, I guess. Potentially enjoy this episode, which will start after the other half of my magical comedy duo, Teller, gives us a countdown. Take it away, Teller. Hello, welcome to the Libro Cube. Uh, my name is Jordan Maywood, and I am the lackadaisical Libro Cube Realist. This show is a journey into my brain, or rather, not my actual physical brain, because that's just a gooey lump, as far as I know. I'm not a doctor, but it is. Rather, into my mind, into the media I have consumed. Yes, I'm going to pour it forth so it doesn't sit up in that dusty attic. And slowly drive me insane. Or not so slowly. <laughs> that was the example of an, uh, an insane person noise. Hmm. Some of this media you may not have consumed yourself, so I warn of that possibility because I could potentially spoil it for you. Aha, that's how that works. How does the rest of these things work? Well, I'm going to push a button that will start a series of five five-minute timers. I am going to also let you know at the top of the show that at the bottom of the show there will be a little thing after the credits potentially. Oh, a little something I like to call a cleanup conversation. Oh, interesting. Okay, pushing button. What the fuck? Ladies and gentlemen, uh, let's get ready to you some things. Today's movie monologue sponsor is Kodo and Podo Locksmithing. Thank you for that sponsorship. Okay, I have a nice selection here for you today. Uh, first, Stan and Ollie. Ah, yeah, uh, kept, uh, this, this definitely falls under the category of, uh, and this happens on a fairly regular frequency, uh, movies where I heard people on podcasts, various ones, talking about uh, it very favorably, which is a hard word to say, it turns out. Uh, from uh, 2018, starring Mr. John C. Riley and Steve Coogan. Big Steve Coogan fan. Aha, I am. Uh, yeah, uh, so based on their actual lives, I suppose, uh, I don't know how much of this we can consider a quote-unquote true story. Um, but if you're unfamiliar with uh, Laurel and Hardy, a.k.a. Stan and Holly, um, you probably have seen them. I, I, I assume, well, you know what, I, I shouldn't assume, because I, I feel like nowadays someone who's, like, I'm 38, so I bet you a 28-year-old may have no idea who uh, uh, Laurel and Hardy is, which is uh, pretty sad, because they were uh, in their day, which was uh, admittedly a long time ago, uh, uh, 
uh, just sort of first and foremost in the world of comedy, in the world of comedy movies, in the world of people who are funny and trying to make people laugh. Uh, a lot of people were influenced by them, and that influence sort of trickles down even to this very day. Uh, and, and you will find uh, comedians, uh, modern day ones, uh, attributing their sense of humor to things they saw in this, and, and, and sort of heaping high praise on Laurel and Hardy. So... Uh, what you should do, uh, you can check this movie out, yes. Uh, Rating-wise, I'll go uh, a solid four. Uh, my ratings, three is enjoyed while watching, but probably wouldn't watch again. So uh, this this is above that. Uh, I had lots of enjoyment, and I can see myself down the road potentially re-watching. You never know. Um, but, but what you should do as well, just on, on this note, is check out some actual factual Laurel and Hardy. Uh, I'm sure you can find them on YouTube. It's, it's black and white, I will warn you. I know young people sometimes have a little little thing about black and whites. But, uh, but still, check that out to see where we have come from so you will understand where we are. Ah, that's like a smart thing a person would say that I just made up right now. Hmm. And that sounds like sarcastic, but I actually does sound like a smart thing maybe it was wow uh anyways let's move on to movie the second always amazing ah uh this is the uh, documentary about the amazing jonathan uh, a former i guess you would say a uh, comedian slash magician uh leaning heavier on the comedy than the magician knee hmm? <clears throat> excuse me uh yeah uh amazing jonathan uh, this uh, the 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 creator of this uh steve byrne b-y-r-n-e has been going on podcasts like mad promoting this thing uh which is interesting because i will say first and foremost uh it is available for free on youtube yeah you could just type in amazing jonathan and you will find this documentary uh and i do recommend it uh similarly to stan and ollie i'm gonna go a, a very very solid four out of five uh interesting dude the gist of the story is he was told uh, about three years ago that uh, he has a heart condition that's going to sort of slowly kill him and he has about a year to live and that was three years ago so uh, he stopped performing and this is about his sort of uh, uh, return to stage because he couldn't just sit idly by anymore so uh, uh, you're gonna laugh you could cry if you have a heart uh, many emotions, you'll probably be grossed out if you remember. And uh, I didn't, uh, hearing Steve Byrne talk of him on podcasts, I actually didn't know who it was. But as soon as I started watching it, I, I said to myself uh, th this exact phrase, oh, that guy, and, and, and that exact intonation, oh, that guy. See, I was right, I was more right the first time I said it. Uh, yeah, I think you might recognize him if you watched uh, comedy stuff from back in the uh, 80s and 90s. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, okay, moving on to Arctic. Oh, man. This is one of the best movies I've seen in a very, very long time. Uh, easy 5 out of 5, potentially a 6 out of 5. Uh, uh, let me read the IMDA. A man stranded in the Arctic after a helicopter crash. Okay, first, that's wrong. Uh, he was in a plane landing that uh, couldn't take off again, uh, and then the rescuers were in a helicopter crash. Okay, so that's wrong. Uh, in a, yeah, must decide whether, whether to remain in the relative safety of his makeshift 
camp or embark on a deadly trek through the unknown. Uh, spoiler alert, he does go on the deadly trek through the unknown. <laughs> Stupid. Whoever wrote that, not good. I'm sorry, IMDB person who wrote that description. Uh, uh, this stars Mads Mikkelsen and uh, a young woman. Oh, you know what? She's billed as young woman because we never get her name because she's in and out of consciousness for the majority of the movie as he, Mads Mikkelsen, uh, who's just incredible in this, uh, tries to sort of drag her miles and miles and miles through the f frozen wasteland of the Arctic, dealing with uh, just so many things. Uh, you know what? Like, so many bad things happen to this guy that uh, eventually you just start, like, laughing. Like, oh my god, like, could this get any worse? Yeah, yeah, that, that phrase, could this get any worse? You're probably gonna say fucking half a dozen times. And, <laughs> again, spoiler alert, it fucking does. Uh, and you reach a point where you just start, like, like laughing. Like, oh my god, this is ridiculous. So much bad things happening. And the reason I like that as well is because there's a point in the movie where he fucking falls in the hole in the ice... Uh, into like a cave and then uh, if that wasn't bad enough his leg gets trapped like uh, what's that movie 127 hours style uh, <laughs> between a rock and a hard place and uh, he's got to fucking basically break it to get out uh, and and he's in that situation and he even realizes Jesus this is ridiculous and he sort of has a little bit of a laugh that turns into a cry uh, and, and just so many uh, this is <laughs> I'm tongue tied I can't even tell you how much I like this movie uh, it's definitely what I I have a category of movies that uh, I don't I'm sure this has come up before I call them sweaty hand movies it's it's where like you're so I guess on the edge of your seat, quote-unquote, uh, where your hands are, like, sweating because you're, like, you, you want things to turn out, but everything bad keep, keeps happening and happening and happening. Up until the very fucking last second, you're like, oh, my God, this is, the like, the worst thing I've ever seen. <sighs> Arctic, uh, definitely going in a, a movies I'm going to try to get people to watch because it's, it was just incredible. And uh, there's almost no dialogue in this movie either. It's It's... Really, really good. I, I very much enjoyed it. Uh, last but not least, but not most, because Arctic was most, The Beastmaster from 1982. Yeah, uh, I had seen this uh, a long while ago. Uh, it's, it's a funny movie, man. Uh, a sword and sorcery fantasy about a young man's search for revenge. Arms with supernatural powers, the handsome hero and his animal allies wage war against marauding forces. Mmm... Uh, the bad guy in this is Rip Torn. Need I say more? Probably. But, uh, the timer went off a while ago, so I'll just give my rating. Uh, it's weird. It's got some cool parts. It's got some real hokey bad parts. Uh, overall, I'd go a solid 4 out of 5, plus even. But it's, it's, it's definitely could fall into that so bad it's good, uh, movie category. Today's Television Talk sponsor is... Oh, it turns out it's the mascot to this very podcast has sponsored this segment. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, it's a sloth in a clockwork orange-style eye-opening helmet. Oh, well, that's uh, something. <sighs> 
Okay, what I have brought back is last week, tonight, yeah, uh, periodically uh, I will uh, let a bunch of them build up and then I'll watch them uh, because, uh, you know, that's how I roll. I like to, to, to really go in uh, uh, testicles deep and uh, experience a bunch at once and really get in the mood of a last week tonight because they, they really pull you in. And, and you watch one, it's like a, a goddamn, uh, is it Pringles? You, I bet you can't eat just one. You can't watch just one segment one episode you, you got to watch a whole bunch of them in a row so i've got one two three four i got five of them here for you yes uh if you're unfamiliar with last week tonight uh in canada it's hard to watch on youtube but it is possible wink wink nudge nudge um i don't know where else you would watch it other than on the actual television which i very infrequently watch that uh i would cancel it if it were not for the misses but uh you know it is a resource to some. Okay, uh, segment the first, medical devices. Uh, let's see, I'm looking at all of these, and uh, with the exception of the last one, uh, a lot of these are sort of Debbie Downers. <laughs> uh, but but the, the thing about that is uh, John Oliver taking these incredibly uh, uh, disturbing, depressing, other D-word uh, subjects that make you just want to cry for humanity... Uh, he'll manage to take things of that ilk and make them uh, entertaining, yes, but also dollops of humor at regular intervals, at, an, at almost scientifically crafted regular intervals of comedy, which I think... Ooh, that's a good title of this. Scientifically regular intervals of comedy. Yeah, that's good. Uh, okay, so uh, we'll just uh, get that there. Uh, so that you're not uh, crying by the end, <laughs> basically. Uh, so, for example, medical devices, um, they're fucked up in that uh, many reasons. Okay, uh, moving on. I, I see the timer counting down, and I've already wasted enough time. Uh, next is death investigations. Uh, yeah, apparently not so good uh and things get fucked up uh the green new deal is the next one uh that is basically something in which uh, uh people want to put in place things to protect the planet and then uh, idiots think that's a bad idea because they don't realize we live on said planet <laughs> uh last uh next is uh, lethal injections that one's sad uh, and scary because uh, one of the sort of tenets of the medical profession is do no harm. The you know the Hippocratic oath. Uh, so the people who have come up with these, the people who administer these, are not medical professionals. So imagine just <laughs> a, a medical amateur, I guess, if you're not a professional, coming up with ways in which to kill you. Uh, is probably, and apparently, not going to be very good at it in doing it a, a humane way. Uh, if we have to c kill people, which, you know, that's a debate in itself, uh, arguably we don't have to kill people. <laughs> you know, there's an argument for not killing people out there, believe it or not. Uh, we could do it in a, a quick and painless way. And the one guy... Uh, or was it a girl even I, I I don't remember suggested returning to the guillotine and you hear that you think oh my god how barbaric but it's 100% effective and it's quick uh, so uh, although to watch it 
is probably horrific to have it done to you. Uh, it's probably really scary, but it's not like these lethal injections that are going to uh, give you basically torture you. Yeah, yeah, not even basically are going to torture you. Period. Full stop. The the lethal injections, like they run through what it actually factually medically does to you, and it's a it's a horrific thing that happens if you get a lethal injection and not just the dying part the the, the before the dying part is just horrific and uh, it still haunts me to this day you might say which is why I'm glad the last one was something called Cheetan C-H-I-I-T-A-N which is a uh, one of those big mascot things uh, and he's the mascot of a uh, Japanese town, or rather the unofficial mascot of a Japanese town who's like terrorizing people in said town, terrorizing tourists, doing uh, uh, weird and crazy things on the interwebs. So it was nice to uh, end watching all of those horrible ones with a nice palate cleanser. Thank you, John Oliver. book banter sponsor is Dr. Scholl's Insoles Long Walk Edition. Thank you for that sponsorship. The sponsorship of this book banter in which I have not one, not three, but two books for you, or rather a short story and I think what is considered a novella. Uh, when does it become a, <coughs> excuse me, a novel from a novella? I don't know. I will just tell you what they are. And you can decide for yourself. Uh, both by Stephen King. Uh, I did A Good Marriage and uh, reread The Long Walk, which is, uh, I think, my favorite of his. Uh, again, I'm gonna, is it a short story? Is it a novella? Is it just a book? I don't know. We don't need to classify that. But it's good, whatever it is. Okay, so rating-wise, uh, Long Walk, definitely easy for me to give a, a 5 out of 5. Uh, I remember when I first read it many, uh, many years ago, and it really hit me hard. It just, for this, it's, it's crazy. Uh, it's, it's basically takes place in the, a world in which... Uh, uh, sort of like Running Man, a similar vein, which he also wrote, uh, in, in which there's this, this, oh geez, I don't even know how to explain it, uh, sport, yeah, let's go ahead and call it a sport, where a uh, hundred young men, uh, we're talking like, uh, uh, uh teens, like, uh, yeah, probably teens to maybe 20, I, I don't, I don't know if we necessarily get ages, um, uh, start walking and have to walk at a certain pace, uh, I think it's maybe four miles an hour, and they all walk until only one is remaining. And when I say that, I mean if you walk slower than that four uh, miles an hour, you'll get a strike. If you get uh, four strikes, you are shot and killed. <laughs> uh, not to mention the fact that uh, people just die from uh, you know exhaustion or maybe have a stroke. Uh, there's many, there's many ways in which you can die on the long walk, but the, the end result is there will only be one of the hundred at the end and they get sort of, uh, it's never a hundred percent explained. They get their heart's desire or, you know, a million dollars or whatever it is. Uh, and it's just brutal and it's, uh, insane. And you know what? Like the Arctic was a sweaty hands movie. This is a bit of a sweaty hands book because, uh, you're sort of, 
you're almost put yourself in the in the in the battered shoes of the contestants because you never sort of know who's going to go next uh someone could just suddenly have a cramp in their leg and then that kills them basically because they can't keep up the pace and then they're shot dead uh it's it's just a fucked up thing and uh i recommend it very much if that sounds like something that you would like you weirdo uh, okay, moving on to uh, A Good Marriage, which I had not read. Uh, I will freely admit on this one, and this has happened to me from time to time, I don't really like short stories too much, or short story compilations, which uh, Stephen King has a fair amount of. Uh, and I thought this was going to be a full book, but then, uh, you know, I got a hundred or whatever, however many pages in, and then the story was over and then the book wasn't over and there was another story. So I was like, ah, shit, I thought this was a full book. Um, so, you know, that happened, which was a shame. Basically this is what it is. Um, so, uh, a man and wife, uh, the husband is away on business of some sort, and the wife sort of stumbles on something in the garage. Something that she shouldn't have seen. Dun-dun-dun. Uh, what that is, is... Oh, the double is. Uh, is a, a box full of things. Things from people who have been sort of found slaughtered. Uh, so it turns out this guy is a serial killer. Uh, they have been married for, you know, 50 years, something like that. And uh, she had no idea until she stumbled across this. So does she play it cool? Does she go right to the cops? And that is sort of the thought processes involved, uh, how she decides to proceed, um, and really, what would you do in that situation? This is this is uh, maybe this is why this is a short story. It's a sort of what would you do in this situation thought it's like turning a what would you do scenario into a book which uh, i guess by necessity is hard to hard to make like a long novel and uh i had that question uh what would i do if i found the missus was a serial killer oh my uh probably turn her in yeah she doesn't listen to this so i could say that Today's game, Gavin's sponsor, is Bonzo of Cucamonga Bug Spray. Thank you for that sponsorship. Okay, uh, this is going to be a bit of a long one, this episode in general, in this segment, uh, because uh, if you're a regular listener, you'll know I will occasionally read the recaps of the last uh, D&D sessions that I ran, or played in. Uh, this, is, this is one I ran. Uh, so... This one a bit longer than normal because it was the final session. Yay. Uh, it was a marathon session. We played from uh, 10 in the morning to uh, 6, 6.30, I think. Or was it 7? Uh, probably probably 6, 6.30. So somewhere in that neighborhood. So we normally play 10 until around 2. Um, but because it was the final session, uh, I sort of had the thought that uh, rather than split this into two... Uh, let's do it all at once, and everyone was on board, so, you know, we, we did that. We uh, did, a fucking, like, your your, your typical uh, young kid party with your pop and your chips and your pizza and stuff. Uh, so, you know, it was it was fun D&D times. And this is the recap of the story. The end of the story, if you've been following along, um, you know, maybe you have an interest of this, potentially. I did. 
<clears throat> Benny, and in fact all members of the Bureau of Balance, are nervously excited. In fact, as you look around to those massed in the field of battle, you see Go Goku, Duke Palpatine, Sir Robert Squaregreaves, Kay Thulu, and Jonathan of Knoxville. Gorn Bluntax, who recruited, who recruited you, is there with a small red-headed gnome. The druids you met in the land of death, Curls, Moo, and Larry, as well as the head of the Chult Druid Enclave, Bowski. W.C., the drunken monk you saved from the Leviathan's belly, Dritz the Urden, who you met in your return from the Underdark, Queen's Anse of the Bees, and Moogie of the Kobolds are there, each with swarms of their own. Saint Leomar, the probably bisexual gold dragon in human form, is there, and perhaps most impressive of all, Maxwell the Timekeeper is there in all his glory. Basically everyone who you have aided in your quest seems to be represented in some way, up to including Captain Klurg and even Gob Garker. Klurg and Gob actually seem to know one another. Perhaps it's the uniqueness of two good-aligned goblins working for one cause that has generated this seeming camaraderie, but it is then that you notice there are several other races with them that would traditionally be called monsters. Uh, we are all gather who are all gathered in a small group among those here who, who will assail Box Stronghold. Bach uh, is short for Bonzo of Cucamonga. Uh, how and why they are here, perhaps a story for another day. Hashtag monster campaign. Yeah. So not the next campaign, but the one after that I'm working on. Uh, and assuming none of the players will listen to this. Well, not that it will matter necessarily this much that I will say. Is that that campaign, they will all be playing uh, monsters, like uh, w races that would traditionally be monsters, I should say. Uh, and the story sort of unfolds from that. Uh, anyways, back to this story. Uh, all the tools of balance have been brought to bear for this final showdown. Seemingly, as soon as you defeated death, quote-unquote, uh, that was the last piece of the puzzle, and the last tendril of imbalance in the world was severed, and Bach no longer was able to keep the citadel floating in the sky, and it has settled into its original location. However, the dome protecting it is still there. It shimmers, and so far any testing done has been able, unable to breach it. Uh, breach it. But Benny has an idea. If those who have fought for balance attack simultaneously all out and truly believe they can penetrate the dome, then surely it must fall to their might. Probably. Hopefully. Uh, with very little trepidation, all forces of the Bureau of Balance attack simultaneously from all directions, including the nine mercenaries Benny was able to hire with your generous donations. Yeah, I was uh, keeping track of... Uh, this is what I did, and uh, it, it, it seemed to work out well. Um, once things really hit the fan, I said uh, to the players that they could have... Uh, whatever they wanted from the store. Uh, and it was just basically a sheet of paper that was representing a, a, a typical D&D style store. Uh, they could have whatever they wanted for free. Uh, it was asked that perhaps they donate to the cause to replace anything they uh, took, but that was not necessary. So uh, 
the amount of mercenaries they were able to hire was determined uh, how much over they donated. Uh, and they ended up donating $900 uh, more than what they took. So uh, that was nine mercenaries. Anyways, just a, a little uh, little thing I did there. Um, uh, somehow, little Benny Buttons, in his, ferger, in his fervor, is the first to reach the barrier, and you all see that the, f for the briefest of seconds, he careens headfirst into the dome, and there is a moment of worry as his nose is smushed for a brief millisecond against the barrier, but then the whole thing pops like a giant bubble. Sir Robert Square Greaves giggles. Everyone pours into the entrance of the citadel, and there's a brief moment of confusion. Seemingly, the very walls and rooms and corridors have become fluid and ethereal. A door or staircase that was there one minute may not be there the next, so everyone is split into smaller and smaller groups without even noticing it happen before it's too late. Anastasia and Grimm find themselves alone, and so too are Valier and Ragnar. Uh, I did that uh, using drawing straws. So I had two short straws and two long straws, uh, and that would be the team that you ended up. <clears throat> In the distance, and sometimes seemingly just around the corner, screaming and battle and other strange noises can be heard. But what is more troublesome, what is most troublesome of all, is the layout of the citadel matches nothing any of them have seen and seems to be thrown together at random. Uh, since it was, because, uh, you know what, if I was smart, I would have uh, got the actual deck. Uh, I got a deck of cards that had dungeon rooms on it, so you could pull from this deck and then uh, have a random dungeon sort of appear before you. And I put each team in their own random dungeon, so uh, that's what I did for that. Um, random things like, I'm not going to read them all, um, but what I did was, there was a 10... Uh, the the bat the the cards the the cards were like uh, either a battle card or a puzzle card I guess you would say uh, or just like a corridor with a trap or something um, so what I did was I created ten uh, non battle situations and ten battle situations and then I would roll uh, a d10 and that would be what they found on top of whatever was just on the card so I, I really sort of laid it on thick as you would say if you want to see my notes for this and what those 10 random things are uh, you know email me I, I can uh, share this gladly uh, okay lastly split party puzzle oh yeah uh, so the, I, I saved one for last and I've sort of done this thing before, I feel like, or something similar, maybe not exactly, where it was uh, uh, two groups in two rooms that can't communicate with each other. Uh, each has a series of buttons or levers that affect things in the other person's room. <laughs> so uh, there was some tentative button pushing at first, but as I think happened last time as well, someone just pushed all the buttons at once. Uh, okay, so here's a list of what the buttons did in not the room you were in, in the opposite room. So uh, there was six of them. So uh, it's, it's nice to come up with numbers like that that you can sort of roll on a D6 because sometimes that's helpful. Uh, so one, release sleeping gas. Two, turn... Uh, the whole room into a globe of darkness and silence, so there would be no sight or sound. I'd have to sort of feel around. Uh, three, music plays. Relaxing and just sort of calm and mellow. Uh, that will uh, heal you over time. Uh, four, ceiling starts to lower. 
uh, five open door and bright white portal uh, so that is the one you want to take you to the next area uh, and five room starts to fill with water so mostly bad <laughs> uh, so after opening a popcorn bag of holding and eating a bunch of the 50 foot cube of popcorn oh yeah uh, so I, sh I should say perhaps at this point that because bonzo of cucamonga uh, is clown-like. Uh, this dungeon had a lot of circus-themed type stuff, uh, so that explains the bag of popcorn. Um, Ragnar and Valier find themselves in a room with all of the things happening simultaneously. Yeah, those six things. As Grim Miles got button-happy. With some quick thinking, Ragnar and Valier, then Grim and Anastasia, managed to escape the topsy-turvy series of rooms where they will no doubt be safe. <laughs> Uh, Bonzo of Cucamonga is a sick fuck, so it should really come as no surprise he has been taking those trapped in his maze and throwing them into a truly insane battle arena and forcing them to fight to the death for his amusement. Valier, Grimm, and Ragnar find themselves in a fight to the death with six of the mercenaries they had hired with their own money. Isn't it ironic, don't you think? Difficult choices were made, and although the choice not to fight did technically exist, the exponentially stronger psychic damage inflicted by Bach, if they did not actively attack others, meant that in order to do so, they would have had to sacrifice themselves. And if they did that, who would de defeat Bach in the end? Yeah, uh, I, I didn't want to just say you have to fight for uh, fight each other, because that's 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 not fair. Uh, although. Uh, I could be accused of railroading more than other sandboxy DMs. I wouldn't go so far as to say you have to fight one another. So there was an out. The out was basically letting yourself uh, have exponential psychic damage until it sort of, uh, quote-unquote, killed you. The, the killed in this is just uh, moving on to the next segment sort of thing. But I also wanted to give them the opportunity to have a, a PVP because we don't, uh, we don't really do PVP in my, uh, in my story. So I, I thought it would be fun. It's always fun. Like, like people do that, just create characters and then have them fight. Uh, one thing I knew though, going in is that that can take a very, very long time if you're playing a hundred percent by the rules. So what I did was, uh, Bach would periodically introduce elements to this sort of crazy arena I created. Elements in the form of modern day weapons. So, uh, did I put what we had here? I don't think I put a list. Um, no, but it was like handgun, shotgun. It started sort of small, <laughs> like that. Then there's like a lightsaber, uh, 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 grenades. A cerebral boar. That one was fun. That's from a Turok. It's it's like a thing that shot out orbs that sort of attach to your head and start drilling into your head and scooping your brains out and then explode. Uh, and then last but not least, the sort of coup de gras at the end was a, uh, a fat man from Fallout. Uh, so not only would that basically kill you if you got hit, but left radiation damage. So if you stayed in the area of effect, uh, it would sort of slowly kill you as well. Um, what the players did, I'm sort of off the script here, what the players did, and I sort of expected this a little bit, is they took care of the mercenaries first, because the mercenaries were fighting back, and then there was that sort of tentative, should we, shouldn't we, but, uh, like, attack one another, but uh, eventually they sort of just got into the spirit of things, and, and, I, and, and there was some tentative feelings of, uh, should I have made them do this? And, and made is not the right word, because they could have not fought. There's always the option to not fight, right? 
Right. Uh, okay, Black, no matter Victor, go the spoils. Okay, yes, Bach is so... Okay, so uh, the spoils... Yes, Bach... Oh, okay, so I'm just sort of skipping the arena part. Uh, yes, Bach is so supremely confident in his vision that rather than simply snuffing the life from those who stand against them, he has treated them like the insects... He sees them to be quite literally as he has turned not only Valier, Grimm, and Ranger into insects, but Theranem. Oh yeah, uh, Theranem uh, was another player I have, but uh, he couldn't make it to the final session, so there you go. Uh, has also made it through along with Benny and some others who attacked Box Stronghold. It is feared those not here are either dead or still losing still lost on the twisting changing maze there is good news though when former head of the bureau of balance estelle getry uh, along with your one-time traveling companion neuroth ganthier were seemingly destroyed in your initial battle to stop bach it turns out they too had suffered the same insectile fate their bodies are unrecognizable of course but even in their even in her stick bug form, her wise eyes and his fire beetle breath, along with their, luckily, still humanoid voices, are a sight for sore, multifaceted eyes. Yeah. Uh, so at the the halfway part, if if you didn't listen to the original uh, to to that recap, um, they face Bach just as he sort of escaped from the book he was trapped in, and they sacrificed themselves to. Uh, like they he, they didn't kill him, but they kept him from just immediately winning right off the bat, sort of thing. So he had to sort of uh, gather his powers, I guess you would say. Uh, and Neuroth Ganthier, he was one of the players uh, who was there at the start. Uh, he also was going to make it for this last session, but couldn't make it. And uh, Estelle is just an NPC. Uh, she was the former head of the Bureau of Balance, uh, a very old druid woman. Uh, on that note, everyone was the following bug. Oh yeah, so. You could tell me if this makes sense or not, but uh, but I think I, I demonstrate a logic here of what type of bug you turn in. So uh, Anastasia and Estelle are stick bugs uh, because they are druids. Uh, Ganthier was a, a, a dragonborn paladin, so he turned into a fire beetle. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you could kind of see that. Uh, Theranem, his class was a farmer. <laughs> you could go to that farmer class 5e and see what I mean. So he was a potato bug. Uh, Ragnar was a monk, so he turned into a grasshopper. Ah, uh, grasshopper. You see? Uh, Grimm was a rogue assassin. Spider, obviously. Uh, Valier was a butterfly. He was a, he's a wizard. Kind of logic there, sure. Uh, and Benny Buttons was a caterpillar because he was also a wizard, but he had been cursed to age backwards. So, uh, that's why he's a caterpillar, hey? Although that curse was broken in a, uh, former uh, side quest that they did in, in a one shot we did anyways uh estelle and neuroth have not been idle in their time and not only trapped in their bug forms but also trapped in box stronghold they had watched and waited and gathered info and resources and most importantly had a plan uh, i created a sort of uh, crazy board like um where people put you know documents and pictures and things on a cork board with like uh, bits of red string attaching things. So I, I like created one that Estelle made 
and put that up on the screen to, uh, I think, effect. Uh, one of the reasons that liches like Bach are so powerful is that they have something called a phylactery, which means that even if somehow, some way, you manage to defeat one in battle, their essence will regenerate in the location they have hidden and protected this supremely powerful magical artifact. Estelle has learned that Bach has chosen to keep his in a pocket dimension of his own creation so that if they have any hope of defeating him once and for all, someone will have to travel there, find and destroy the phylactery, and, and find and destroy the phylactery. A further monkey wrench is that Bach has been in communication with Bathsheba, a.k.a. Lady Doom, a.k.a. Lady Luck. Uh, this is from actual D&D lore, which I, I pull a lot from. Uh, it seems like Bach's confidence is amplified by the fact that with Luck literally on his side, there's no way he can be defeated. Estelle lays out her three-part plan. 1. Interrupt the communication between Bach and Bathsheba so that Luck will no longer be on his side, making his destruction at least possible, if not likely. Go to the pocket dimension and destroy Bach's phylactery, so that if you do manage to do the impossible, it will not be for naught, as he will be unable to come back. 3. Defeat Bach. Oh boy. Uh, to aid Valier, Grimm, and Ragnar in their quests, Estelle and Ganthier once more combine their druidic and godly powers, not only healing and giving them the benefits of a long rest, but also unlocking some of the powers they had within level 19 achieved. Folks, we're almost at level 20. Uh, they also bestow on them gifts to amplify their newfound insectile forms. So, for Spider-Grimm, we've got a web-slinger. Um, basically, in their insect forms, I was doing math, let's say, because they were literally tiny little insects. So, uh, I won't go into too many details, but basically, uh, say if they did a hit, it would be one-tenth the damage that they normally did. Um, just sort of, that's just sort of a... a a basic math that I sort of worked in their insectile forms. Uh, so that's why this, uh, the web slinger, web that shoots from your ad abdomen have none of the disadvantages of your small size. So, you know, just an example. Uh, so for uh, a butterfly valier, he had a jet pack. <laughs> it doubles his flight speed. And uh, he can, uh, when he turns it on, uh, add plus five to his AC, but you're flying in erratic patterns, so we would roll a d6, and whichever way the one is facing is the way he would go. And if he hits something uh, in that uh, doubling of flight speed, uh, he would take a double fall damage as well. So, you know, it was a sort of a, 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 a give or take there. Uh, Grasshopper Ragnar, he had the double jump leg warmers, uh, so it let him, like in a video game, double jump. Yeah, you guessed it. Uh, the team set off after much difficulty with some delicious, but poison, sugar. They find themselves, oh yeah, that was like a series of uh, uh, saving throws to shake off the poison. Sa wisdom saving throws to not eat the sugar because they really wanted to eat it in their insectile forms. And then uh, healing, just sort of <laughs> until they could uh, shake it off. Uh, that went on for a while. Uh, yeah. Uh, they find themselves in the scrying room Bach used to keep 
in communication with Lady Doom. Estelle has told them that interrupting this communication is vital, and after some reconnaissance, they enact a plan that almost kills them but is successful in the end when they, one, suddenly change the sigils found around the room using a combination of blood and healing potions. Yeah, so uh, on the mostly, yeah, I guess it was just on the floor around this sort of scrying portal device. Uh, there was a bunch of runes, so uh, they sort of erased some, added some of their own, and just like subtly changed it so that uh, when it was trying to use, it wouldn't work. Uh, they added some booze to whatever uh, potion concoction Bach used as part of the communication ceremony. Yeah, so he was in the room while this was happening, Bach was, uh, but he was uh, sort of not paying attention. He was so involved in making whatever this potion was, so he was sort of going back and forth, uh, adding ingredients, uh, doing incantations, reading from a spell book. So they managed to, uh, with distracting him, um, one of them distract and one of them sort of, while invisible, uh, um, added some booze that they had from uh, inside of the Leviathan. I do believe that's where they got that booze. Uh, into the potion, so it would be, again, subtly different and not work. Uh, and then lastly, eventually managed to free the four human sacrifices. Yeah, that was the hardest part, and I kind of knew it would be. How do insects free humans who are locked in a cage? Uh, they did manage to find the key, and uh, <laughs> it was hard for them to convince in their insect forms for uh, to, to get these four humans to suddenly uh, obey the will of little insects, like scurry in and free them, but uh, they did. So that's good. Uh, escaping through holes in the wall in their tiny insect forms. Yeah, so that was one advantage they had is they could sort of skitter away and hide in the wall sort of thing. Uh, in their insect forms, they managed to eventually pass through a portal to the pocket dimension. Yeah, so this was after. Uh, where box phylactery is hidden. The laws of the universe they are used to do not really seem to be in effect. Occasionally switches in the direction of gravity are worrisome, but what really causes an issue is when a random item each of them are carrying seems to gain sentience and attacks. Yeah, that was fun. Uh, so what I said is the third item down on your character sheet suddenly comes a lot. And I had no idea what these items would be. I want to stress that fact very much. Uh, and it, I think it'll be obvious. The third item down on your character sheet will come alive and attack you. So uh, Ragnar, it was just a potion. So a, a potion bottle basically came alive, uh, hit him, and then broke open, and then he was like a little sticky with the potion on him because, you know, potions are probably sticky. Uh, Valier, he had a club. It was called the, the Dancing Club. Basically, if it hit you, uh, you had to do a wisdom save or you would start dancing. Uh, I can't remember if it hit him or not. But worst of all, Grimm, he had uh, basically, if you've ever seen the movie Hellraiser, uh, many, many uh, sessions ago, they were in a sort of a torture dungeon. And, that, and there was a torture demon in the shape of Pinhead from Hellraiser. Uh, and they sort of unleashed him from this cube, as you do in the movie. Uh, so he had the cube on him still. And that is what came alive. So suddenly we have literally Pinhead from Hellraiser in this pocket dimension that is already not a safe place uh, attacking them. So that probably of things that could have come alive and attacked, that was the literal worst that could have happened. So uh, I thought that was pretty funny. Uh, eventually, a likely looking glowing sphere is found among the chaos and fire, water, and air 
and earth elementals. Oh yeah, there was one of each of the elementals just sort of chilling around, not really doing anything, not attacking. That is until, uh, when touched, it whisks our adventures away to what is basically a pocket dimension inside a pocket dimension. We have to go deeper, uh, where they are each confronted by younger versions of themselves, younger versions of themselves that are holding what looks suspiciously like the image of a phylactery that Estelle had on her crazy board. Uh, in order to complete their goal and retrieve the magic, uh, the magical necromantic device, each must sacrifice something to their younger selves. Ragnar chose a relic from his one-time teacher uh, that he had carried all these many years. Gim chose a magical dagger that had served him well on his quest. Valier sacrificed the knowledge of a spell. Magic missile. Yeah, so uh, that one was I was most impressed with, actually. Uh, he chose to... Uh, basically, I was looking for one of two things. Something of actual value to them, like the, the dagger, uh, like Grimm's dagger, or something uh, uh, of uh, something that meant something to their characters, like uh, uh, Ragnar's uh, broken sword it was. Or then this was a cool one that Valier came up with. Uh, the ability to cast magic missile he lost. Uh, he, he sacrificed that. Uh, uh, you know what? One other note on this, this whole uh, sacrifice pocket dimension younger version of yourself thing. Uh, I didn't have that in my notes. <laughs> so uh, I 100% just made that up on the spot, which uh, I don't want to say I was impressed with myself, but I, I thought that was a very cool idea. Uh, especially considering I had no idea that uh, I was going to do that. It just sort of happened. So, you know, that's fun. Uh, regardless of sacrifice, they all gained a part of box phylactery that when united shone brightly for a moment before they smashed it into a million pieces, which expelled them from this pocket as it seems the phylactery was what was keeping it from falling in on itself. With... These two tasks complete, Bach can be destroyed and can't come back. He has retreated to his final stronghold. The rest of the Citadel has returned to normal, and so too has everyone from their insectile forms. A sense of accomplishment and the knowledge of no matter what happens next, they have done their best to resolve this situation. It also raises them to level 20, yes. Uh, so... This whole thing started at level 1. We've made it to level 20. Uh, because I am not 100% experienced and I knew the power of level 20 characters is immense, uh, I chose to just do it for the final battle, um, which I think worked out well. Because having a level 20 characters, say, run through a dungeon, uh, it's probably somewhat difficult to make it challenging. Uh, I, I mean, anything's possible, and I think I could do it uh, now, but uh, I'm probably more worried about it when I first started writing this campaign. So uh, that's just a thought I have there. Uh, as you pierce the veil uh, of this box innermost sanctuary, sanctuary <laughs> there's a pop, like when you initially entered this area of the Bureau of Balance. Judging from the fact that this is his last bastion of power, you know this will not be an easy fight. The very air in this room is somewhat permeated with power. A power just out of your leak reach, but likely one Bach can tap into. A power perhaps originating from whatever the seething mass of seemingly liquid, oozy, pulsing gelatinous, gelatinous and downright odd pool perhaps 50 feet below. Uh, yeah, uh, again, I can post a picture of the map from this. It's pretty uh, crazy looking, even I will admit. 
um, and battle ensues, and it becomes quickly apparent that even traversing this domain is made difficult by the combination of multiple changes in elevation and the fact that the pulsating multi-hued ooze seems to have a sentience of its own and is trying to pull Valier, Grimm, and Ragnar into it. Uh, what ensued was not only a battle to the death, but also a tipping of scales of balance to be found. Is found, yes. This ooze is made up of the concentration of randomness, an imbalance that Bach has gathered in order to use it for his evil and no doubt insane designs. Since power corrupts, we eventually learn that any who find themselves in its slimy embrace have portions of their essence corrupted and stripped from them. Uh, so yeah, this was pretty cool. Uh, at least I thought. If you were... Uh, I rolled randomly on who was going to be targeted by the ooze. And depending on the height you were at, uh, you would have either no turns or one turn to get out of this embrace uh, if it did manage to get you. Like, it, it wasn't it grabbed you and you were in. It uh, had to try to grab you like an attack. Uh, and then... Uh, if you were high enough up, you would be able to uh, use the strength to get yourself free. Anyways, uh, the cool thing about the ooze is, if you fell into it, you would uh, start back at the beginning of this arena, let's call it. It was sort of long, so it would take you uh, probably several turns, depending on your speed, to get from one end to the other, where Bach was. Um, and when you came back, you would have one of your uh, ability scores set to one. Yeah, so basically you would be almost crippled, depending on what it was and what your class was. And I will say, somehow, some way, uh, and we did this all in front, these were roles done in front of everyone. Uh, nobody got one of their uh, ability scores set to one that was sort of vital. So we didn't have a wizard with a one intelligence. We didn't have uh, Ragnar the monk with a one in dexterity. So so things like that. Uh, the, they got pretty fucked. <laughs> uh, like Ragnar had his constitution set to one, so his uh, hit point maximum was like nothing. It was like one hit and he would be out. But still. That was the other thing. Uh, if you were uh, knocked unconscious, we didn't do death saves. Um, what would happen is the ooze would just immediately grab your unconscious form and pull you in and then you would come back with one HP again minus uh, with, with one of your uh, ability scores sent to one. Uh, so that was kind of a cool little thing. It, it, it meant that uh, you got weaker and weaker as the fight progressed and it was sort of an exponential thing. Okay, but there has to be balance uh bach had a similar thing he had the five grand relics each of which gave him incredibly powerful abilities he actually did get a little fucked in his <laughs> selection like the first one that got taken from him was the one that gave him the ability to fly uh, it was the red nose that let him control air uh so right off the bat he couldn't do that uh and he only had five and uh instead of the six ability scores of the others so you know it was a little fair. <laughs> uh, and again, with him, it was sort of that exponential thing. Like, the more you beat him, the easier it is to beat him. Uh, until the very end, let me read this. When Bach found himself likewise ooze-engulfed, it was a grand relic that started to be pulled from him. Uh, Eventually, with the tables clearly turned against him, Bach watches as Valier, Grimm, and Ragnar converge and simultaneously unleash a fury that even the broken man, the broken mind, 
even his broken mind can comprehend the end. Uh, okay, so when they were sort of doing their uh, last blows, what I did uh, was, a, a, I think, cool, and I think it went over well, although I didn't get praise, or but, but I did get rapt attention, I'm pretty sure. Uh, I, I created a video uh, describing the last events of the campaign, basically. Uh, you know what I could do? Uh, you know what I think I'll do? Uh, since this is going long and I'll probably lose my voice soon, um, maybe I'll switch that out and I'll put it in the conversation cleanup. Where mm. I'll put it right here. Bonzo of Cucamonga has a special level of insanity where he truly believed up until the very end there was no way he could be defeated. To you, he has been Bach. But this trickster lich has been known by many names in many times in many places. His godlike powers are fed by imbalance and randomness. He created the grand relics to focus his power to his will, but they gain a sentience of their own and trapped him in the book of knowledge for who knows how long. This book was central to the creation of the Bureau of Balance, Bach, knew the only way to free himself and once more unleash his special brand of evil and imbalance was to use the powers of good for his cause. Just like tipping scales, Bach used your actions to tip them his way once more. But the thing about scales is they will always find balance in a never-ending cycle of back and forth, back and forth. All these thoughts and more flashed in Bach's mind when the final blow landed, and the second he realized that he was going to lose this battle, the churling, roiling ooze that is the very personification of imbalance and randomness shot upwards from the pool below. When the ooze settles, every surface of the room is coated in a thin, translucent film, and you immediately see the beaten Bach once more wearing all the grand relics. But you do not see happiness or triumph on his face. What you see instead is terror. No! You will not bind me again. And I mean that both figuratively and literally in terms of binding, like in a book. <laughs> As I was saying, no! If I cannot have the power, no one will. A look of pain on his withered visage is accompanied by blue-black lightning that arcs between him and the grand relics. When it does, they seem to shriek and reverberate through the chamber, and the ooze covering everything turns black and pulses with an eerie regularity. The blackness dominates everything, as you not only see it, but hear the darkness, you smell the darkness, you feel the darkness. Moving inwards as it dominates all of your senses, the last thing all of you see is the smiling mouth of the mad lich Bach as it whispers in your mind. Well, maybe next time. <laughs> <laughs> This giggle trails off in an eerie echo that may go on for minutes or days or years. But just when you feel your sanity start to slip away, silent, bright explosions of each of the grand relics lights up the darkness and you see 
A tornado destroys a forest. A landslide fills a lake. A tsunami erases an island. A lightning bolt explodes a tree from the inside. Image after image assails your mind. All involving the various elements the grand relics could control, destroying one another. Or almost all. All images tinged more and more with the blue-black ooze from Bach as it's melding with this destruction and forcing them on and on. Time stands still, and eventually the only thing you see and feel and hear and taste is that blue-black ooze suffusing your very being until it, too, is gone and everything fades. The fading takes hold, and each and every one of you does what you can to hold on, but it is no use. You cling to your memories, but they start to fade. Grim. What is a strong memory from your life? It could be before you all met in the tavern, or in the time since you started your journey that led you here. Ragnar, what is a strong memory of your life? Valier, do you have a memory from your life? It could be before you all met in the tavern, or on the journey that led you here. Ganthir, what is a strong memory of your life? Theranam, what is a strong memory from your life? Could be before you were rescued from Shar's castle in the realm of shadow, or in the time since you started your journey that led you here. Eventually, not with a bang or a whimper, even those strong memories are virtually non-existence. And you were once more in your bodies. But are they your bodies? Something feels odd and off. Even that sensation is fading when... On the table in front of you, someone has written in wine, Don't forget. You all see this, but it means nothing to any of you. An almost simultaneous shrug from every one of you perhaps causes some of you to smile? At the very least, you acknowledge each other's presence in this time, in this place. Why don't you introduce yourselves? Okay, so that was just the audio uh, without the visuals. Uh, so with the visuals, I also added uh, some music and uh, really up to production values. And uh, it really came out very cool. If you want to see that, uh, you know, again, like with the other things I've said, just uh, let me know and I can uh, send it on to you. Hey, why not? It's interesting. It did come out well. I should post it somewhere, and, and maybe I will. But then it gives away the ending, so... Eh, whatever. Intercourse sponsor is motherfuckers. <sighs> yeah, uh, okay, so this is uh, not one I've been looking forward to because uh, it's still a sore subject. Uh, and that is uh, my YouTube account got deleted. Uh, yeah, with no rhyme and, guess what, no reason. Uh, so, yeah, uh, came home one day 
uh, and went to you know, log in because before and after work, I'll usually watch YouTube, uh, and then tried to log in and it said your account's been deleted. What the fuck? Uh, I, I, you know, dig into it. What's going on? Uh, it was deleted for the reason of, uh, I suppose I could give more detail, which I, I don't have because they wouldn't give me any more detail, but, uh, spam is sort of the... The, the, the underlying, uh, th like, like there's things your account can be deleted for, and the category of thing mine was deleted for was something called spam and um, spam policy, some, something along those lines. Uh, no sense. <laughs> uh, spam, uh, one of the things was it, it says, like, uh, trying to get people to go to other sites to sell them things or, or, or something like that. Uh, which I read the policies cover to cover regarding what they were talking about, and I have no idea what I post that could have anything to do with that. Uh, my monetization is off, I've never had it on, uh, so I'm not trying to sell anything. Basically, what I post are two main things this podcast and then just the odd funny dumb video like maybe a mashup like my favorite being uh taking the movie uh up and the television show mash and putting them together and what i like to call the mashup mashup for example things like that uh somehow some way and i think for that to happen someone would have had to complain someone would have had to like say this person is doing this like uh, report me so uh it's just ridiculous uh yes that had happened but the fact that i could not get any answers out of youtube uh, i appealed the appeal was denied in maybe 10 minutes and uh incredibly frustrating angry uh tried tweeting at them nothing happened uh, this is two possible things is what I think it is. Uh, Podbean, the site that hosts this podcast, would automatically post uh, the podcast to YouTube, which is a very cool feature. Uh, you just click a button and it posts not only to uh, the normal feed, and which gets on iTunes and all the regular spots, but also would create a video version of it automatically and post it to YouTube, which is a very, very cool thing. My theory is something happened there where it tried to post this, because this is what it's sort of the same thing. One of the spam things is trying to post the same thing multiple times. So I have a theory that somehow it tried to post the same video like again and again and again in some sort of glitch um so i i think maybe that's what happened uh i tried to go to podbean they were zero help um i asked them if anything like this had happened before nothing uh, i'm sort of debating getting off podbean because of that uh i'm going to start posting my videos all the ones that i lost all the literally uh i think i was over a hundred thousand uh, views uh i had hundreds of subscribers uh, uh like uh, years and years and years of work went into doing things on that channel that's just gone um with a snap of the fingers with which is horrible but th the most devastating thing to me is no having no idea why it happened and not being able to find out why and having no recourse to find out why and having no recourse to fix it. It's just impossible. Uh, it's not like there's someone you can call over at fucking Google. Uh, it's a, it's a massive company. And for the little, the little guy, quite literally the, the, the little YouTuber like myself who barely does it at all, there's zero recourse and it's uh, it's sad and, uh, I don't like it. And 
fuck them. <laughs> just period full stop. I'm not you if you've listened to every of these almost 500 episodes, you've probably very rarely if ever heard me angry. But uh, I was angry and upset and still am. And uh, I, uh what I've done, what I'm working on uh is probably well uh, I've already bought a Squarespace uh website. I've already bought a domain uh, and I'm sort of setting that up so that I can be in control of my content. Uh, so I'm going to get things off of YouTube. Uh, may try to get things off of Podbean because uh, Squarespace does offer the ability to host podcasts as well. I'm going to try to have sort of everything central where I can control it, where no one can say, uh, no, we don't want you anymore. Snap of fingers, you're gone. And and not even tell me, not even give me a warning. Uh, it's just fucking ridiculous. So you know, though the we'll talk about that as uh, as things progress. Like it was to the point where I just thought, you know what, uh, I'm not going to do the podcast anymore. I'm not going to post anything online anymore. If things like this can happen. What's the point of me trying to do anything? Uh, creative such as it is uh, it just really hit me hard and uh, I did not like it and fuck them again did I mention <laughs> I just realized now I have to say something because it's the end of the show and I say this at the end of every show it's nice to be nice to the nice but uh, you know still they're not nice so fuck them This is the end of the show. A sincere thank you for listening. Time to plug some things and I do not mean buts. You can like us on Facebook. You can follow Jordan underscore Maywood on Twitter. You can subscribe and comment on iTunes. Lastly, if you would like to contact the podcast, you can email jordan.maywood at gmail.com. I would like to conclude that I am not a robot and that I have a theory. I've got a theory that it's a demon, a dancing demon. Nah, something isn't right there. I've got a theory. The best is yet to come, and babe, won't it be fine? You think you've seen the sun, but you ain't seen it shine. Wait till the warm-up's underway. Wait till our lips have met. Wait till you see that sunshine day You ain't seen nothing yet The best is yet to come and be Won't it be fine The best is yet to come Live long and prosper Wow, longest episode in a while, but you know, lots of D&D stuff, lots of angry stuff, lots of movies, it's just a jam-packed episode, so what are you going to do? Okay, I debated as I was recording this episode, because it was so long, not doing this conversation cleanup, but I really wanted and liked the idea that we read the recap to the final session of the 
year, almost two year, somewhere in there, a long campaign from level one to 20 that I ran. Uh, so very excited about that. Very excited to have that full campaign under my belt. I like it very much. I had a great amount of fun. Players were great. Uh, I think the story I told was interesting. Uh, the play was, uh, again, I think it's, you know what, you, you know what I did and you know what I, I assume this is a, a DM thing, uh, is play or sorry, run the game that you would want to play in. Yeah, like that's what they say of comedians: write jokes that would make you laugh, or 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 of writers: write a book that you would want to read. Th- th- things along that line, and that at the very least, I could say that is what I did. So there you go. Uh, anyways, uh, so the transition from old to new is what we're talking here. Uh, I'm going to be starting to play in a new campaign in the coming weeks, which I'm very very excited about. Uh, I think I might have spoken briefly about it in a previous episode. The DM has been DMing since uh, 1979 on and off. I was born in 1981, so he's been DMing longer than I've been alive, which is pretty goddamn incredible. Uh, and, and we've done our session zero. And so far, my hopes are very, very high for this. So what I thought I would do as a sort of transition from old to new is just read the backstory of the character that uh, I'm going to be playing in this new campaign. So there you go. Uh, Let me start off by saying he is a uh, gnome. He is 499 years old. He is a wizard. Uh, and the, the, the subclass I'm going to be playing is called a, uh, archivist, I think, I forget what it is, but it's, uh, all to do with, like, knowledge and stuff like that. Anyways, Oxford, Ox, Britannica, was born to a famous southern gnomish family that prized entertainment over just about everything. His father was a bard, his father's father was a bard, and you get one guess what his father's father's father did for a living. Uh, you know what, I have this sort of just little tickle, little side note here, little tickle that the first character I ever played was a gnome bard, so maybe, you know, that's somewhere involved here, we'll see. Uh, by the time Oxford could walk, it was obvious that his talents lay in areas other than what his parents referred to as the biz. At first, it was small things, like his toy blocks being stored in alphabetical order, or the teeny incomprehensible markings he made in the margins of the children's books his parents gave him. By the age of seven, Oxford had not yet spoken his first word, and his parents, who loved their small, strange little boy dearly, decided he was not necessarily destined for greater things, but certainly for different things. A series of tutors came and went with little success of wrangling young Oxford, but eventually an elderly elven wizard from the north named Andal got his attention with a simple trick. A relatively simple smell called Comprehend Languages cast on Oxford just seemed to click something in his mind, and suddenly the sheer amount of words he had at his disposal flew from his mouth as if trying to catch up with all the time he had been lost and not speaking. When the spell faded, his words remained, and so did a desire to gather and understand more words, more things, more, always more. An insatiable curiosity grew, so much so that the only way he could keep it at bay was to organize and catalog. His mind would only settle when taking notes. 
He had a special writing style that allowed him to not only write small, but also to write forwards and backwards, write up, write down, write in a sort of code so complex that at a glance, the text of one of his pages would be incomprehensible to most. It meant, by the age of nine, he had organized and cataloged every single thing within his family home. Every stone that made up the walls, every nail and every board of every table, every freckle on his mother's face, all of it fit on two pages. Thus started the germ of the idea for Oxford Britannica's Alchionary. From Aarakocca to Zombri, from Acid Splash to Zone of Truth, this tome will be the dictionary of all things. Oxford's methodical mind latched onto this idea, and he knew it would be his life's work. Uh, the same methodicalness, which is not a word in a normal dictionary, but does appear in his tome, uh, was what sent him to the farthest reaches north, so that, as he put it, he can start at the top and work my way down. His parents were obviously sad to see him go, but the Dramatic sides of them realized they could not crush his dreams. After much cajoling and preparation, at the tender age of ten, Oxford set off with Andal, the wizard as guide, to the farthest reaches of the frozen north. It was a long and arduous journey, and along the way Andal realized that a mind such as Oxford's would be perfectly suited for learning the intricacies of magic. So along the way he started training him in the very basics of the arcane arts. At first Oxford showed little interest, but then realized that any tools he could develop in the search for knowledge would help him <laughs> in his life's work. To work smart, not hard, would mean that much more organization and cataloging cataloging will be possible uh, all of his spells will have this goal in mind that's a little side note for me uh, by the time andal and oxford reached gnomish made great spire of the ice sea the seed to use magic as a means to his ultimate goal had been planted a seed that still grows to this day uh, the inhabitants of the Great Spire of the Sea, uh, and this is again something uh, similar to uh, we talked about before, where I took this from actual D&D lore. Uh, the inhabitants of the Great Spire of the Icy worship the god Gond, who is the patron of craft folk inventors and creators. So, they welcomed a mind like Oxford's with open arms, and he spent many happy years there with Andal, venturing north in a search of knowledge. When Oxford had reached the age of 200, he had just about cataloged everything in the immediate vicinity and realized it was time to finally head slightly south. With a tearful goodbye to the gnomes of the spire, they sent him off with a creation of their own. Combination belt slash suspenders and book holder, they crafted a device for Oxford that would allow him to have one hand free while furiously scribbling his notes. He gave them a copy of his unfinished Alchionary, although no one could read it. More years passed, and so too did Andal. Distraught, Oxford did not know where to turn with his boon companion. without his boon companion. He found himself in the keep of Sir Baylor. His will to continue his life's work fading. Uh, a half-hearted attempt to catalog the Keep's library left him in tears where once it would have given great joy. He realized now, almost 400, uh, 400 and 
question marks, <laughs> uh, his life's work would just not happen in his lifetime. Uh, momentarily, yeah, gnomes live 500 is very, very old for a gnome. Uh, momentarily distracted by some youth rushing through the library, playing some sort of game, brought a smile to his old wizened face, and it struck him like that cop comprehend languages spell did so many years before, that if he could not finish the Alshinarini, he would just have to find someone who could. In his travels, he had heard of Sir Baylor's taking in of orphan children, so right then and there he sought him out. With a love of teaching he did not know he had, instilled from a virtual lifetime traveling with his one-time tutor and friend Andal, he offered up his services as tutor to those orphans that Sir Baylor seemed to collect, an arrangement that seemed to benefit both. From then until now, Oxford Britannica had continued to work on his alchemy with renewed vigor, but has also been searching and grooming Sir Baylor's orphans in the hopes of finding those among them who can continue on his work when he is no longer able to. At the very least, he tries to instill within his pupils a love of knowledge that gave him the happy life he has led. Ah, uh, yeah. <laughs> 